The recitations were over for the day. It was the first week in November, and it had rained about every day the entire week. Now, freezing temperature added to the discomfiture of the dismal season. The lingering equinoctial whirled the last clinging yellow leaves from the trees on the campus and strewed them over the deserted paths, while from the leaden sky, fluttering snow-white flakes gave an unexpected touch of winter to the scene. The east wind, for which Boston and vicinity is celebrated, drove the sleet against the window panes of the room in which Rel Briggs sat among his books and the apparatus for experiments. The room served for both living and sleeping. Briggs could have told you that the barrenness and desolateness of the apartment were like his life, but he was a reticent man who knew how to suffer in silence. The dreary, wet afternoon, the cheerless walk over West Boston Bridge through the soaking streets had but served to emphasize the loneliness of his position, and morbid thoughts had haunted him all day. To what use all this persistent hard work for a place in the world, clothes, food, a roof? Is suicide wrong? He asked himself with tormenting persistency. From out of the storm, Voices and hands seemed beckoning him all day to cut the Gordian knot and solve the riddle of whence and whither for all time. He then went to the tape deck and flipped over his copy of The Cure's Disintegration to side B. <laughs> no kidding. This guy is Hamlet-level bummed out. Uh, what was that uh, we just heard there? What was that from? That was the opening to Of One Blood, a novel written by Pauline E. Hopkins, a novel never, ever mentioned by H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> That's right. This is a novel that was serialized in the Colored American magazine starting in 1902. Lovecraft would have been a little too young to have been reading that periodical. I could be wrong, but be probably wrong. not something that he was checking out regularly. In spite of that, we've decided to cover this bit of weird fiction on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We are here at hppodcraft.com. My name is Chad Pfeiffer. And my name is Chris Lackey. Who is our reader? Well, that was a good friend of mine, Felicia King. Most folks call her Flea. Felicia lives out here in Los Angeles but is yet another Illinois expatriate. Love him. I met her here, but that's where she's from. She loves her horror and her sci-fi, and I said, hey, that's what we do here. Why don't you come read? So she was gracious enough to do that. Thank you, Felicia. Thank you, Felicia. Very, very nice. This month is February, a month in the past we have reserved for werewolves. Yeah, and don't think that just because we're not doing werewolves this month that they won't be coming back at some point. No, no. There's that wolf's head story from Robert E. Howard. We haven't covered that yet. So. Oh, yes. There's always room for werewolves. We'll get back around to them. But this month, we're getting in line with the rest of the U.S. and we're doing Black History Month. We are. Black History Month is itself a little controversial because, you know, black history is American history. Yes. And there are lots of folks who say, why are we reserving just one month for the study of something that should be woven into all months of studying? Yeah. Certainly something folks could discuss. We're not going to do that. No. That's a discussion for another place. We're just psyched that our listeners pointed us in the direction of this book, uh, which is written by a black woman, yep. and that we can spend some time seeing what non-dead white guys were writing about in the early 20th century world of genre fiction. Yeah. We're going to dig into that. Uh, but you just made a little film, Chris. Let's talk about that for a second. I did make a little film. Uh, it's called The Ordeal of Randolph Carter. I did it with Greg Johnson, who is a reader That's right. on our show. We've had him on a bunch. He lives in Leeds, which is really close to where I, I live. And we decided that the statement of Randolph Carter is not funny enough. So we thought we would make a short <laughs> film to make it funnier, I guess, is the whole point of that. So it is a comedy. It's about four and a half minutes long. 
I recommend everybody go check it out. If you go to YouTube and type in The Ordeal of Randolph Carter, you will find it. But we will also link to it in the show notes. It's really good. It's really funny. Everybody should check it out. And hopefully you guys are going to do some more of those, right? We're hoping to do at least three. And then if people like them and want more, we will continue doing it. Well, I like it. It's good. But let's talk about Pauline Hopkins. Yeah, before we get into this book, what's the deal with Pauline? Well, she was born in 1859, and that is two years before the start of the American Civil War. Her first known work was in 1880, and it was a musical play called The Slave's Escape or The Underground Railroad. It was revised as Peculiar Sam or The Underground Railroad. Mm -hmm. I am very curious to what that would be like, a musical yeah. in 1880 about slaves escaping. I'd love to see it. Not typical material for a musical. Maybe that's something that'll get a revival. Pauline was born in Portland, Maine. I picked up Of One Blood in a Kindle edition. Mm-hmm. It's available online, but this is a good edition you can get on uh, for your Kindle. It's good. It's cheap. There's an introduction by Deborah E. McDowell. So I'm getting my biographical information from there. She says, Pauline began her artistic career writing, acting, and performing with the Hopkins Colored Troubadours, which mm-hmm. included some of her family members. They gave concerts throughout the Boston area. We'll be seeing a little of that in this story, actually. Yeah. She had a short story called Talma Gordon, which was published in 1900. And it is often considered uh, one of the first African-American mystery stories. Oh, cool. Uh, she published her first novel, Contending Forces, Romance Illustrative of Negro Life North and South in 1900. That's a big title there. Mm-hmm. It explored the difficulties faced by African-Americans amid the racist violence of post-Civil War America. She published three serial novels between 1901 and 1903 in the African-American periodical Colored American Magazine. Right. Uh, the stories were Hagger's Daughter, Story of Southern Caste Prejudice, Winota, A Tale of a Negro Life in the South and Southwest, and Of One Blood, or The Hidden Self, which is what we are covering this month. Right. She sometimes used a pseudonym, Sarah A. Allen. After she had published those books, those serial novels, she took over as the literary editor of the Colored American Magazine Mm -hmm. for a couple of years, but it was eventually taken over or funded by Booker T. Washington, and once that change happened, she stepped down Mm -hmm. because she'd been critical of Booker T. Washington's politics in the past. She was much more in line with W.B. Du Bois, who actually published his famous The Souls of Black Folk around the same time as this in 1903. That was really when Du Bois and Washington had their break, which there's a lot to go over there. But essentially, Washington was the more pragmatic between the two. Booker T. Washington, he was a former slave and he just didn't think the blacks would achieve full equality in the U.S. He accepted segregation in exchange for better educational opportunities, whereas Du Bois felt blacks didn't need to earn equality. They already had it. As a people, they had a rich history rich traditions of their own, Mm. and he wanted full equality now. So they had a kind of a different outlook on things. Both have interesting perspectives, and we don't really have much time to get into that, but it's something that we'll probably touch on again. So Hopkins spent the remainder of her years working as a stenographer in Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. Mm. Uh, She died in Cambridge, Massachusetts from burns sustained in a house fire. Mm. That's no way to go. No, that is horrible. But like a weird fiction protagonist, maybe there was a reason the fire was set, you know, maybe. Some evidence had to be destroyed or, oh, or some, some horrid thing had to be. Of One Blood or The Hidden Self is the last of four novels written by Pauline Hopkins. She mm-hmm. is considered by some to be the most prolific African-American woman writer and the most influential literary editor of the first decade of the 20th century, though she is lesser known than many other literary figures of the Harlem Renaissance. The title of the book, Of One Blood, it actually comes from the Bible. Hmm. Acts 17.26, quote is, Of one blood I made all nations of man to dwell upon the face of the earth. We know there is definitely a message 
message in this novel that's not hidden. It's right there in the title mm -hmm. that despite physical characteristics, all humans are the same. It's clear we're dealing with that message right away because our main characters in this are all, well, not all of them, but they're, they're passing. They're essentially white people with, with black blood. And Hopkins really believed that art and literature were key to changing things socially. Here's a quote from her preference to contending forces when she was talking about fiction. No one will do this for us. We must ourselves develop the men and women who will faithfully portray the inmost thought and feelings of the Negro with all the fire and romance which lie dormant in our history and as yet unrecognized by writers of the Anglo-Saxon race. Hopefully we can do a little here to recognize that fire and romance. Yeah, I, I'm really enjoying the story so far, but I do have to confess something. I'm not done with the novel yet. Right. I'm halfway through it. We don't get a lot of prep time since we're doing this stuff on a week-to-week -week basis, but so far, everything that I've read, I'm really liking it. It's an easy read. I don't know what happens at the end, so if I bring up questions, they might get answered later in the book. Right, yeah. I haven't finished it either. I'm about a third of the way through. It's a pretty fun read, like you say, and I think it's about to take some weird turns after the setup we do. Yeah. Although things are pretty weird right from the outset. Yeah, her pro style is really accessible. Definitely more on the romantic side of things. But there's definitely a healthy amount of supernatural weirdness that is mm -hmm. in here. So this is a weird story. Maybe a little bit more on the gothic lit side, but still weird. Sure. And other than the subject matter, I mean, I wouldn't know this was different from any of the other stuff we read. Oh, yeah. But I do think that this is actually a perfect book to study as part of a weird fiction slash Lovecraft course, mm -hmm. because so much of Lovecraft is a fear of having that impure bloodline, yeah. uh, as we see in Arthur German, Shadow Over Innsmouth, on and on. And here we're exploring the same subject from, from a completely different point of view. Yeah. In the world of this book and the real world at this time that, that Hopkins was writing, there was the one drop rule in the country, which meant that if you had even one ancestor that was African, you were considered a Negro, no matter how you looked and therefore less than. Huh. That's crazy. Yeah. Especially when you consider that we're all from Africa. Yeah. Right. It just depends on how far back you go. This is a book that's going to call that idea into question, that one drop. One of the things that Hopkins liked about the United States is that she saw that this was a place that would eventually become a blending yeah. of the two races. No matter what anybody did, that was just going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I think this book addresses that. One thing about being a woman at this time, uh, she wasn't allowed to vote. Right. Women couldn't vote until 1920. Yeah. Which is crazy Th to think that she was an African-American woman, how low she would be on the caste system. Mm -hmm. And the fact that she was able to overcome that and become an accomplished writer and an editor. And that's amazing. Yeah. And it was right around this time that uh, a lot of African-American writers suddenly become preeminent. Yeah, and this is really the jump-starting of the Harlem Renaissance. That really kicks in uh, in another couple of decades. There's so much about it I don't know. I've been reading, trying to read up as, as much as I can about it. It's a whole bit of history that really gets overlooked, and I'm glad we're talking about it. Yeah, yeah. So let's dig into the book. It starts off with this Bostonian, Ruel Briggs. It's an unusual name. There are a few ways to pronounce it, but I'm going to yeah. go with Ruel. Well, I think it, it's R-E-U-E-L. There are multiple ways to pronounce it. I think you say all the vowels. So you would say Ruel. Well, I think it's Raul, which would be hard to say all the time. So I think Ruel. I was saying Raul. <laughs> Raul. Like Raul, but with an E or like an E sound. Raul. So we're not sure how to pronounce this. <laughs> and it's going to be all over the place because yeah. he's the he's the protagonist of this story. Also, this name is one of the R's in J.R.R. Tolkien. That's right. But this is our guy, Raul Briggs. He's poor guy, but he's super smart. He's also a student of the occult and mesmerism, which mm. makes me like him right off the bat. Sure. His studies take him to dark places, and sometimes he just wants to curl up in bed and listen to the swans and just have a good cry. You've got him listening to lots of gothy music. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm making fun of him, but I actually like this character. He's studying a book called The Unclassified Residuum. Now, I found a short story published in the Overland Monthly in 1891 called A Bit of Unclassified Residuum, which goes over part of this mind stuff. But uh. I decided I was going to write Ken Height and ask him because I'm going, wait a minute, I'm sure if anybody knows what this is in reference to, Ken mm -hmm. would. And he goes, yes, it is a reference to William James's The Hidden Self, which was an essay, this guy, what William James did. And he was, he's 1842 to 1910. He was a psychologist, philosopher, doctor. He was into uh, the study of the mind, kind of a precursor to actual modern psychology and psychiatry. She knows who this guy is and she's referencing that. But this book that he's reading, it's all about mysticism. Yes. It's got this spiritual angle to it. And, you know, I felt like this guy would be right in place for an Algernon Blackwood story. Oh, A yeah. doctor who believes in supernatural things. And he knows that the medical establishment will write off all kinds of supernatural phenomena, those described in this book and elsewhere, but he's really ready to believe there's something to all of it. Mm -hmm. And the book points to things like a woman being possessed who knows facts and details about people she couldn't possibly know. That sort of thing is what, what turns right. him on, reading about that. But there's also this very existential aspect of the book. Yeah, and that's what sends him into Bumsville. Making him consider suicide, although he's also considering it because he's poor. The hardships of finding food and clothing and all that stuff are really getting to him. But the thing about him is that he is... He is an attractive man. Yes. There is a whole paragraph devoted to how attractive he is. I'm not going to go into it, but no one could fail to notice the vast breadth of shoulder, the strong throat that upheld a plain face, the long limbs, the sinewy hands. Boy, maybe I should keep reading. <laughs> yeah. He's got aristocratic features, skin white, but it has a bit of an olive tinge to it, so maybe he's Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. Not really sure exactly where he's from. Some folks think he's Italian. Others think he's Japanese. Huh? Not sure if any of these people actually knew what Japanese people looked like, because from this description, which is very detailed, he doesn't sound Japanese at all. No. Since he was not born an aristocrat, he is really going to have to work extra hard to get anyone to pay any attention to his work. Right. And he's not an aristocrat. In fact, nobody knows any of his relatives or where he's no. from or anything. He makes his money by tutoring and writing articles about supernatural phenomena for magazines. That's how he's staying afloat. Mm -hmm. So he's in this dingy room. He's reading his book. He's contemplating suicide because everything is so hard. Yeah. And it's storming outside. Real storm raging. His vision focuses past uh, what he's looking at out the window. And then he enters kind of this dreamlike state and gets a vision. And it's a vision of a woman. As he sent his earnest, penetrating gaze into the night, gradually the darkness and the storm faded into tints of cream and rose and soft moist lips silhouetted against the background of a lowering sky and waving branches he saw distinctly outlined a fair face framed in golden hair with soft brown eyes and deep and earnest, terribly earnest they seemed just then, rose-tinged, baby lips, and an expression of wistful entreaty. Oof. Whoa, hello. Nice rain. He gets up to look out the window, get a better look at this, this vision, and as he does, there's a knock at the door. It's not this vision of this beautiful woman that he saw, but it is his good buddy, Aubrey Livingston. Who's also handsome, right? He's Super handsome, yeah. He's got a beautiful face of a Greek god and sculptured features. Man, this guy, this is the kind of the romantic angle of this story. I feel like Hopkins is definitely more interested in relationships, which I find really refreshing. The stories we cover don't usually focus so much on this stuff. Well, everybody in this book is beautiful. It's 
it's almost like an Anne Rice yeah. novel or something like that. <laughs> but with Aubrey, it says there was that in the countenance of Aubrey Livingston that engendered doubt. So there's something a little strange about him. Yeah. But he's a good friend to Rule. He's also super rich and he's helped yes. Rule, but Rule has helped him in return. So nobody's in anybody's debt. Right. They're just good friends. Aubrey gives him a hard time about studying too much. And then they both sit down by the fire and quietly smoke cigars. Raul says that Aubrey would understand the reason he worked so hard if he ever experienced poverty, even for a short time. And Aubrey's like, no, I'm rich. I can't be bothered doing anything hard for something as trivial as insight. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> well, he, Aubrey says, look, I'm not thinking about books. At present, it's the ladies, bless their sweet faces, who disturb me. <laughs> He's all about the ladies. They begin to talk about life and death and good and evil, and mostly regards to Rowell's reading. Talks about Rowell shrugging his handsome shoulders. Dude, there is a lot of handsome, broad shoulder description in in this story. It comes up a lot. People's shoulders. Yeah, I think Hopkins might have been interested in handsome shoulders. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, why not? But have you ever looked at somebody and gone, ah, look at those shoulders? I haven't. Ugh, so ugly. (laughs) (laughs) Raul says about the author of the book that he's reading is really onto something and it's worth investigating. And then Aubrey says, well, you know, hey, if you find a subject, I'll find the money. Yeah, he'll fund some kind of research. Aubrey says, you know, actually, let's not talk about that right now. We got to go to this concert. And Raul goes, oh, I'm not in the mood for a concert. And Aubrey's just, come on, dude, quit your brooding. Let's go out. Enjoy this concert. It's the Southern Colored People of Tremont Temple. And of course, being a Southerner, Aubrey tells him uh, that he knows Negro music. Raul decides that he'll go. But before they leave, Aubrey asks him his thoughts on the Negro problem. Yeah, he says, you know, that's the one subject you never talk about. What do you think about the Negro problem? I didn't really understand what the Negro problem was. It sounded just evil and racist to me. It (laughs) did. But so then I did some research on it. And at the time, what was called the Negro problem, it was the issue of the obstacles that American blacks had to deal with for full participation in the American culture and society. Right. Right. And there was a book that came out in 1944, which is well after this, called An American Dilemma, The Negro Problem in Modern Democracy. And the guy that wrote this was a Swedish sociologist called Myrdal. And Myrdal believed uh, he saw this vicious cycle in which whites oppressed blacks and then pointed to the blacks' poor performance as a reason for the oppression. Mm-hmm. And that is a vicious cycle, obviously. And then the only way to get out of this cycle, he argued, was to either cure whites of the prejudice or to improve the circumstances for blacks which would then disprove the whites' preconceived notions. Mm -hmm. As you can see, this is a problem that existed and still exists. That cycle continues Yeah, yeah, to this day. And I think this is what they're talking about. But Raul's reply is curious to me. He says, I have a horror of discussing the woes of unfortunates, tramps, stray dogs and cats and Negroes, probably because I am an unfortunate myself. Which I think he just means I'm a poor, shabby guy. Yes. So I'm on the outs. Like all of these other people, stray dogs, cats, and, and, and black folks. And so I don't really like talking about it because I'm in the same boat. But not the way he thinks he is. And that ends chapter one. Uh, so chapter two, we starts off describing how after the Civil War, a lot of money went into helping newly freed black folk get themselves into a position where they could be in economic control. Mm-hmm. Lots of money from England as well as philanthropists from the U.S. So it became kind of an upper class society project sort of thing. And one of these things to come out of this was this black vocal and musical group, which they're going to go see. So Aubrey and Raul take their balcony seats, prepare to listen to some great music. Of course, Raul is still being a bit of a downer, but Aubrey keeps him talking mostly about how some of the women are really attractive in this group. And some of them look 
totally white. Aubrey points out that one of the vocalists is not just an amazing singer, but she's very, very beautiful. We find out here that it's not just the two men, but this other guy, Charlie Vance, is there as well. Right. And he knows that this singer is a woman named Dianthe Lusk. Yes, and, and Charlie Vance had seen her singing in New York. You know, and he's always, he's one of those guys, he's always falling for somebody. He's always talking about the loveliest girl. He's, right. an, he's another kind of cad. Yeah. I do have to admit that, you know, the first time they name her Dianthe Lusk, they say, great name. And I agree, that is a great name, Dianthe Lusk. The performance begins and it's amazing. Starts off with the Lord's Prayer, folks are moved. But then this vocalist, Dianthe, arrives and she's beautiful, very light-skinned, light hair. Fair is the fairest woman in the hall with wavy bands of chestnut hair and great melting eyes of brown Soft as those of childhood, a willowy figure of exquisite mold clad in a somber gown of black. Right. Despite her appearance, she is black. When she starts singing, she is amazing. Folks were moved before, but now they are brought to tears. She is that awesome. She's singing Go Down Moses, which is a Negro spiritual about the Old Testament. Here's just a little of that from uh, Louis Armstrong, if you're not familiar. Let my people go. People might be more familiar with that song from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> Let my Cameron go. But the thing that is freaking Raul out is not her singing, but the fact that she is the woman from his vision earlier that <gasps> night. What? What is happening? And chapter two. Chapter three <laughs> brings us to Halloween. Yes. We get kind of a creepy view of Mount Auburn Cemetery, actual place in Boston. Very kind of cinematic. Camera moves through the cemetery and, and the neighborhood and to a nearby house. That is the house of Charlie Vance, also known as Adonis by his mm -hmm. pals because he is that good looking. A bunch of folks are gathered there. It's Molly Vance, Charlie's sister, Aubrey right. Livingston, still handsome. Uh -huh. Raul is there as well, also still handsome. <laughs> And three other guys and three other girls. All probably handsome. It's nine o'clock and they're already bored. So this lady, Cora, speaks up and she wants to tell ghost stories. Lots of folks groan. Ah, oh, ghosts are well. Halloween, come on. But Molly, she's all for it. And it seems that if Molly wants something, Molly gets her way. Yeah, she's 18. She loves this stuff. She wants to, to, to do some ghosting. Then Molly suggests that they try and do the hide house bid. Everybody's like, well, what's, what is that? She goes on to say that there was a lady over at Hyde House, a ghost of a lady. It says that she only appears on Halloween when the moon is new. If anyone stands tonight in the avenue leading to the house, you will surely see a tall veiled figure gliding among the old hemlock trees. If, however, the watchman remained, the lady will pause and utter some sentence of prophecy of his future. Very specific spectral activity. It is. And also, Molly says, oh, I had forgotten. There's this woman. Because the place is next door, right? Yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's like adjacent to their property. There's a woman that appears on Halloween, just like tonight, when the moon is new, just yeah. like tonight. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even think about that, which <laughs> makes me... I, I think she's just making it up to suit the party. I don't know sure. if there's any kind of 
Everything about this ghost story is suspect to me. And then if yeah. the ghost comes out, it'll, it'll tell you your fortune. That's pretty good. Mm. You don't get that really with ghost stories. Usually you just see them and then that's it. Yeah, usually a judge hangs you or some <laughs> caterpillars give you cancer. <laughs> Rarely do you get a, a fortune told. Yeah, that's a pretty good deal. Raul is like, has anyone ever heard of this? You know, because he's into the supernatural. Right. And Molly says, oh, yeah, this totally happened to my friend's mom's boss's daughter. <laughs> <laughs> so Rule is like, okay, yeah, you know what? Let's test this out. Yeah, she's got some friend of a friend justification for it. And of course, everybody gets kind of excited about testing this out. And then they, they say, women can't go. Too dangerous for a woman to go. Right. Which actually some of the women are okay with because they didn't want to do it anyway. Right. But of course, Molly's mad. I, I would be mad if I was a woman. Like, what? I can't go out there and just stand and look for a ghost. But come on. They draw lots for the time periods they're going right. to go out there and watch, and it's only the men that are going to do it. Yeah. And the women, they have to. It says they have to do the ordinary Halloween projects while they're waiting, which I guess is they're in there trying to make costumes sexy. Yep, sexy Freddy Krueger, sexy Chewbacca, sexy H.P. Lovecraft. Craft's one of my favorite. I, you know, I have seen sexy Cthulhu before. <laughs> I don't want to see that. I didn't want to, but I've seen it. Was it sexy? No, it wasn't sexy. Okay. You can. There's something you can't sex up certain. Right. There's no scenario where I'm like. Mm, Never really looked at Cthulhu like that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. No, there isn't. So they draw straws to pick the order. Aubrey goes first, then Charlie, then Rule. Uh, The house is well known for its hauntedness and superstitious people avoid it. The story originally told of a tale of unfaithful husband, a wronged wife, and a beautiful governess forming a combination which led to the murder of a guest for his money. The master of the house died from remorse under peculiar circumstances. She goes into a bit more detail about the origin of the story. Yeah, she says that there was a local magazine that wrote about it, and so she quotes that as near as she can remember, which I found funny because she sounds exactly like a magazine article when she uh, <laughs> when she quotes it from memory. A most interesting story is told by a woman who occupied the house for a short time. She relates that she had no sooner crossed the threshold than she was met by a beautiful woman in flowing robes of black who begged permission to speak through her to her friends. The friends were thereupon bidden to be present at a certain time. When all were assembled, they were directed by invisible powers to kneel. Then the spirit told the tale of the tragedy through the woman. The spirit was the niece of the murderer, and she was in the house when the crime was committed. She discovered bloodstains on the door of the woodshed and told her uncle that she suspected him of murdering the guest who had mysteriously disappeared. He secured her promise not to betray him. She had always kept the secret. Although both had been dead for many years, they were chained to the scene of the crime, as was the governess, who was the man's partner in guilt. The final release of the niece from the place was conditional on her making a public confession. This done, she would never be heard from again, and she never was, except on Halloween Eve, when the moon is new. So, coming off our January haunted house month Mm -hmm. this is a good transition yeah it is and it it reminds me a little bit of the empty house that's set up it does it does indeed Raul goes on to say that certain people with a mental affinity will experience things like this Mm -hmm. and that if people could strengthen their mental sight more folks would be able to experience these kinds of things Raul seems like an intelligent guy but I I was like huh he believes the story right away (laughs) It was a pretty involved backstory, too, with lots of layers. It really sounds made up to me. Uh, but yeah, that's his feeling is that these things are real. And, and if people just had more focus, it's it's complete Algernon Blackwood stuff. Yeah. So Aubrey goes out there to watch at the house. Nothing. Then Charlie goes out. And he sees a figure in the trees. 
but he doesn't stick around, so he just bails. Yeah, so I guess it scared him. He didn't want to wait around for his fortune. Then Rule goes to to check it out. Now, when he goes, he's not even thinking about ghosts. He's thinking about ladies. Right. And that since he doesn't have any money or status, that he's never going to get one. And he could see that there's sort of this little chemistry going on between Molly and Aubrey. He's kind of bumming out a bit yeah. about that. That's what's making him feel sad because he's an all or nothing guy, too, which I totally respect. He's like, I'm not going to settle just because I'm supposed to. He said, I don't regard a wife as one regards bread. Better sour bread than starvation. Better an uncongenial life companion than none. What a frightful mistake. I got to agree yeah. with him there. You know, hold on to it. I do. Wait for someone special. As he walks towards the house, the mental unrest that he felt three weeks ago, which is when the story began, when he had that vision, it comes again. And that's when he sees this female figure just ahead of him, coming towards him, walking towards him. And at first he can't really see her face, but just the eyes, which are large, bright, and dark. Sorrowfully wistful, mm -hmm. also imploring, gazing straight forward. She covers her face and he says, ma'am, are you in trouble? Can I help you? And then she removes her hands and it's Dianthe Lusk. Yes, he sees that it's her and she says, you can help me, but not now, tomorrow. And he's not surprised by this. In fact, he is filled with the light. Mm -hmm. She starts to fade. He starts to move towards her. And then she says, the time is not yet. I think she just turns and walks away. Oh, right. Says okay. she disappears among the gloomy hemlock trees. So I think she might have walked away. But pretty crazy, right? He's seen her twice now, like spiritually, even after he's seen her in the, in the concert. Yeah. But he doesn't tell anybody else about that. No. He just goes home and, and goes to sleep. Which makes me think even more that that story was bunk. So he had some kind of telepathic communication or otherwise with Deanthe. Well, I don't know if he did or not, because how would she know what was going to happen to her? Well, we're going to find that out, actually, pretty soon. I think there's a reason that she's able to know what's going to happen at that moment. But it's all really weird. It doesn't make sense. He, he went to go see the specific ghost, but she's the one that showed up instead. And that gets us into chapter four. Which I think is a good place to wrap up our coverage of the story. We'll, we're going to move at a faster pace since there is a lot to cover up front because it is a novel. Yeah. Uh, but I, you know, I really enjoy it. And it, it still feels like it's from this period. I mean, it really doesn't feel that much different than other stories that we've covered. No. Except there's a little bit more of a romantic vibe to it. And a little bit more of a message uh, backing it up. Yes. About something really real. But I got to tell folks, okay, so we've had some ghostly stuff so far. Hang on, because in this very next chapter, we're going to get some reanimator business. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, right out of Lovecraft, it's, it's uh, suddenly... Raul has some talents and some skills and some knowledge that we didn't know about. Yeah. I can't wait to talk about it because it's it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Because they kind of make it out like it's something, but then other information. Okay, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> well, it's funny because he's got reanimator skills and it's just, they just bring it up son. Yeah. Like he basically solved the issues of life and death, but didn't want to tell anybody yet. <laughs> <laughs> He's that awesome. I know. Well, it's it's pretty cool stuff. So we're going to talk about that next week. I want to once again thank Flea. Felicia King did a great job reading. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. And I just want to remind folks to please go check out my and Greg Johnson's film, The Ordeal of Randolph Carter. It is funny. You will love it. Check it out. <laughs> and we will be back uh, next week with more of One Blood. And with that, I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We are at hppodcraft.com. HP Podcraft.